Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. I'm Sarah Kalkin, the LGC editor. The Local Authority brings together some of the biggest names in and around local government to discuss some of the biggest issues facing the sector. The theme is one of change, how councils can change their area and themselves for the better. Today we're looking at services for children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities often referred to as SEND services. With budgets spiralling out of control, yet parents and carers still feeling they have to really fight to get their children the support they need, there is perhaps no area of council services more in need of change. Something the government recognised when it published a green paper earlier this year. We'll be exploring what this might mean with my panel today. I'm joined by Lucy Nessinger, a Lib Dem councillor for 20 years and currently leader of the Cambridgeshire County Council and deputy chair of the LGA's Children and Young People's Board. Matt Dunkley, a past president of the Association of Directors of Children's Services with 18 years experience as a DCS at Kent, East Sussex and Norfolk and now working as an independent consultant. And Alex Leslie, consultant at TPX Impact who has experience working with around eight local authorities on their SEND services. Can I perhaps get you all to introduce yourselves and just say a bit about your experience of an involvement with um, the SEND services? So, um, uh, Lucy, can I come to you first? Thank you, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. Um, yes, I've been a councillor for um, a weirdly long time now, um, but obviously not full-time for all of that time and my previous professional work has been um, in primary school teaching um, with a focus on special educational needs as part of that and particularly early identification of special educational needs. Um, so it's an area I've had a strong interest in for many years. Thank you. And uh, Matt? Hi, yes. Uh, um, as you mentioned, I was a director of children's services in three counties for 18 years. So uh, a long experience from that perspective. Um, I was president of ADCS and during that time, obviously SEND was um, a major feature of policy around that time, as it always is. And I was also, or am, a parent of a child who had special educational needs and had experience when he was a child going through the school system uh, of the parent's perspective. Thank you, Matt. And Alex? Hi, Sarah. Lovely to be here. Um, yeah, similarly, so my um, background, I say, is uh, kind of got introduced around actually about the time of the 2014 Act. It was when I first got involved with some local authorities, particularly on the technology side, trying to respond to things like the local offer. Um, and then increasingly, that's been more and more um, sort of change consultation work and currently involved with some of the um, DFE projects around Project Safety Valve, and some of their kind of big initiatives. Uh, and then prior to that, um, my background experiences in children's mental health so working um, on the NHS side of things for quite a long time and seeing 
um, sort of the other side of the fence, I guess, where some of those um, challenges and also where some of the professional teams whose diagnosis has been relied upon uh, and the interface of those with councils and, and education and some of the knotty problems that were happening there. So, yeah, all the mess from all the places. Thank you. So you mentioned that the, the reforms to SEND services in, in 2014, which were you know, supposed to bring dramatic improvements to services, um, but yeah, here we are, nobody's happy. And I just wonder what, what's gone wrong. And uh, Matt, would you, would you like to come in on, on that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that um, I'm going to say some critical things in this podcast, but I have to acknowledge that uh, this area of policy is incredibly tricky. It's really complex with lots of moving parts. And none of what I say in criticism um, uh, takes away from the fact that for politicians and policymakers, this is a really difficult area with lots of things to balance off and lots of players. So I don't pretend this is easy. I do think, however, that 2014 was an example of um, policy that was well-intentioned but badly thought out. At, at the time the reforms were being road-tested with the local authorities, there was strong feedback from local authorities in the fa- in the feedback that the policy was not going to have the um, outcomes that it intended. And, and that feedback was ignored at the time. And many of the things that the pilot authorities raised as issues have become reality. So I think there's something to learn there. I also think there is an issue about the interaction between um, different areas of government policy. And that's something Lucy may want to comment on from a political perspective later. But a whole government approach wasn't evident, even though for the first time the government brought the health sector into the SEND equation with the creation of uh, health and care plans. I think the way in which the health uh, sector and the NHS has been involved with SEND through this process hasn't worked out as was intended and and hasn't uh, succeeded in the way uh, it was tried. I think fundamentally, however, I think there was, um, whether it was deliberate or not, there was a shift away from um, what I would call a social model of disability, which historically had been um, for 20 odd years, the approach to disability and additional needs to a medicalized model of disability. Um, and an, an individualized and medicalized model, which has become writ large in um, what we now have of individual parents fighting desperately for an individual child to have an individual package of resources, which is sometimes having a perverse impact on both uh, schools and on the resources and into a, uh, a an education sector and a market where many of the providers are not incentivized in the right way. So I think we've got ourselves into a bit of a policy muddle. And I think the Green Paper was an opportunity to um, look at some of the underlying causes of the problems. And I think all it did was look at the symptoms. And I think we have got to take a first principle look at at the actual underlying causes and not just the symptoms. Sure. And you mentioned a lot of things. There's often a view that, oh, if they just funded these reforms properly, it would have been okay. But from what you're saying, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Is that? Yeah, and I have experienced in the last five years in Kent, and in, in interest of full disclosure, I, I do not think I was remotely successful in Kent in relation to SEND. Um, and we've managed to, Kent managed to accrue one of the largest high needs deficits in the country. It is the largest authority. And one of the reasons for that was that 
a lot of, as it were, bad money followed good. We were pouring money into things that actually were not having the impact that we wanted. And we uh, ended up with a system where parents felt that their best interest more often than not was served by very expensive specialist independent placements. And they didn't have faith in their local system and their local schools as the right solution for their child. And to be blunt about it, some of the state-funded players in the school system um, went along with that view and encouraged parents in the view that they needed independent and special provision rather than their local school. Uh, so, you know, I, I've I've seen us pour money into a system that in the end hasn't been, I believe, well spent and certainly not in terms of the satisfaction of parents or the happiness of parents and their children. And in a county like Kent, and this may be similar for Lucy, we're spend, Kent is spending £42 million this year on SEN transport to transport children in taxis all over the, the, the county and to neighbouring counties to go to specialist provision rather than their local school. £42 million on transport. There has to be a better way uh, than spending that money on polluting the, the environment, to be honest. Yeah, sure. Lucy, would you agree with that analysis? What do you think went wrong with the 2014 reforms? So I certainly agree that they um, that we've been pouring um, increasing quantities of money into a system which isn't pleasing anybody. Um, I do think that the reforms in 2014 were well-intentioned. Um, and I think that some of the things that were done then um, were helpful and particularly the, the, I think the main goal at that point was to try and get better engagement from the health sector within the system. I'm not sure whether it has succeeded in that, in fact, but, um, but that was certainly one of the main objectives. I think one of the core problems that happened in 2014, and we are in danger of doing exactly the same thing with the reforms now, is that they were, that, 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 um, SEND has been sort of split off into a separate bubble rather than being looked at as a core part of the education system. And, and you can't just, I mean, there are some children for whom um, education is clearly always going to need to be different and that they will not be able to survive or thrive in mainstream school. But it's my personal view that there are an, an enormous number of children who could and should be thriving in mainstream school who are not getting the support in mainstream schools that they should be early enough. And that therefore, because they're not getting that support early enough, they struggle further and are ending up in um, special education when potentially having, if they had had support at an, at, the early, at an early stage or at the right stage, they might not have needed to go down that route. I think that has enormous costs for councils. I mean, just phenomenal. It's also often not the best thing for the child or for their family um, because, because where children are able to um, cope in a mainstream situation with, with support, that's so much better for the family and for the child in the majority of cases. Um, but, but obviously where you draw that line is tricky. I just don't think we've got the approach right within the education system. And one of the things that happened around the same time as the 2014 reforms was a, was the fragmentation of the education system, um, the reduction of the role of local authorities and, and their influence within schools, all of which made it more difficult to 
support schools or encourage schools to keep children and and give children the right support when they need it in main in the mainstream system. Um, so I think that that failure, which is is really a failure of the education system and the education um, funding pattern that we have at the moment, to be talking about S E and D without looking at that. Um, is really unhelpful. And, and it seems to me that we're in danger of doing that again. Alex, does that reflect your experience working with councils in terms of yeah, on the I mean, ground it's... trying to make these reforms work? <laughs> yeah, it's painfully true. I mean, it doesn't come across in a podcast when you're nodding vigorously uh, to the other two people talking, but um, all of that. And I think um, a key theme kind of underpinning both of what you've said, I kind of really agree with is I'm a massive advocate of local authorities and kind of the the delegation of local powers and and the belief of kind of local strengths. I feel like this is, that's not binary, nor should it always be. And I think this is one of those areas where it really doesn't benefit from the segmentation at every level that we've seen that came across with 2014. Like the amount of times I can't kind of begin to describe when we've gone into different authorities and different parts of the country seeing exactly the same issues and then similar, similar patterns, but having had no opportunity or breadth to kind of learn from anywhere else. But even that kind of feels too small scale to just trying to pattern out little pockets of best practice. I think on the back, particularly of the pandemic, it's a sector that is exhausted on all sides. Everybody is absolutely at breaking point. Um, and it feels to me that was a real missed opportunity, as I say, with the Green Paper to have a proper fundamental reset about what we're seeing in national trends and patterns, you know, the the exponential growth of kind of um, early signs and uh, things we're seeing in early years off the back of children kind of coming out of lockdowns and, and various periods of time. The numbers are, they were bad before. They're sort of unfathomable, really, when you kind of try and say it. They lose all meaning, really, when you say them out loud at the scale that they're at. But I think there is a real missed opportunity there where, I think there's a much greater role for the DfE and I think there's a much greater role for government to take, have more of an opinion, I think, than just mere standards um, and get more ownership and control of what information looks like nationally and what good looks like nationally. And I think what we're seeing is a continued pattern of what's been before, which is abdicating that responsibility a little bit. Um, And that then trickles down at every level. That's mainstream schools get the opportunity to push out the things that they should be doing. A local authority can start treating this as a system and it just becomes about numbers in and numbers out. And health, again, are the same. You know, have a growing inbox and being asked to contribute mere sections on, you know, a tiny slither of someone's plan. And I think we're just trying to push the complexity somewhere and ultimately, like, actually we have to stop and, and deal with it. Sure, yeah. Can I, can I add a, a really interesting figure that uh, the ADCS uh, quoted in their response that prior to the implementation of the 2014 reforms, the DfE estimated the additional recurring burdens would be £24.5 million a year for the country. And uh, I think at the end of this year, high needs blocks are projected to be overspent by £2.5 billion nationally. So whatever thousand percent increase on what they predicted that represents um that that alone i think is is it speaks of a policy that's not working as 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 it was intended and uh i i come back to the fact that i i think we should start with echoing lucy's point that what what is education for children and special needs what are our aims what do we believe about that and 
if we believe in inclusion, what does that mean in terms of the reality for the majority of children being taught in a mainstream school and in their local mainstream school? If we're going to create a system where the majority of children with additional needs are taught locally, what does that look like rather than approaching the problem from the other end, which is how I believe uh, the current reforms and the Green Paper have done? So if, if we come on to the, the Green Paper and the, the reforms that are proposed, I mean, one of the things that it talks about is having nationally consistent standards. And I just wondered, is there anything in that that could help solve solve the issues? Um, Lucy, what? So I think it probably might be quite useful, but I think in the context of the grand, of the scale of the problem we're trying to deal with, it's not going to fix it. Um, it, it does feel like tinkering at the edges of a much bigger problem. Um, so, so I don't, I, I do think that nationally consistent standards probably would be quite helpful for local authorities and for parents because it can give them a little bit of an idea about what they should or should not be able to expect. But, but there is also a problem that, um, SEND children don't fall into nationally consistent patterns and any, um, system which is set up for dealing with children with SEND has to have a huge individual element because, because every child is different. Every family is different and they will need, they will have different abilities to cope. They will be functioning within different kind of, um, places. Um, all of those things matter to what is, um, needed for an individual child. Um, so, so although I think that having, having a sense of what people can expect and, and a, a, some sense of, uh, more consistency across authorities will be helpful. The idea that it's going to be a, a, a kind of that, that that's going to fix the problem is is just um, it, it, it's a small part of a much much larger um, thing that we should be concerned about. Just to go back very briefly to the issue about education and and the Im- impact that that's having. I think one of the things that so, so there are so many different types of special educational needs, children with special educational needs and disabilities. Um, but, but but the sector that's growing the fastest, I believe, at the moment are children and young people with, with significant mental health problems. Um, and I think that that's also something that we need to be exploring and thinking about why in the UK we have this explosion of mental health problems among young people and what is it within our education system that is leading to that. Um, because it's incredibly destructive to to young people and their families that the pain that those um mental health issues are causing um and and i don't think we're talking about that enough in this context either do you have a sense of what is the reason for that then lucy um <laughs> i have some small instinctive feelings but i i i i think we need a lot more research on it i mean um our children are the most examined in the world um and and I think that the way in which we approach education and the and the way in which we um the, the pressure that we put on teachers and schools through the testing regimes that we have are unhelpful for children with SEND. I think they're unhelpful for many children. Um and I think it would be very good for us to look at what edu- what successful education systems in other places achieve. Uh, but I but I do think that it's not something we should just pretend isn't there. I think if I may um, just add to that, that there's no doubt that the pandemic differentiated, in, in differentially impacted 
young people, perhaps already who were struggling in school and or who had special educational needs. And there's, there's some hard evidence for that. So the number of children who have never come back, particularly adolescents, who have never come back to school since the, lock, the lockdowns and who actually need sometimes acute mental health, mental health services for which there is almost no provision uh, it is growing and, and very large. And uh, it isn't only this country. There's some very interesting research coming out of the United States about um, the impact of lockdown. They've got some school districts in the United States where children are still the majority of children being taught online and not coming into school. And uh, so I think, I think the pandemic had, a, had a, an accelerated impact on mental health problems that were already there, but certainly created some of its own. We've all talked about the experience of parents and children. I should say we did um, approach some parents' organisations to see if anyone wanted to come on and talk, um, but they, they didn't take up our offer. But some of the, the comments I've seen online and in blogs from parents' groups around the Green Paper, I mean, one, one, one said, my fear is that the Green Paper will propose some kind of watering down of children's existing rights and their entitlements as a way of increasing consistency of provision um i mean is this is that a legitimate fear is that i mean how else do you kind of get the, the spending under control without reducing access i feel as if it is a, i think it is a legitimate fear um partly because i think so much of the um conversation around this is is about um the the enormous deficits and and getting the spending under control and clearly that is um something that that needs to be tackled but if you're going into a process um focusing on we need to cut the budget i can see why parents would be worried about that if that's the core message um so i i i completely understand that fear. I th- I'm sure that, I mean, I don't think that there is a suggestion in the white paper that, that rights will be reduced, but but there is always a, a balance to be struck and I can see why parents are worried about it. Um, I also think that, again, we're talking about that as a it sort of um, the, the, the health and care plan as a separate thing from the rest of the system. And I, and, and I think that, that we, we keep coming back to that's not the right way to look at this. Matt, what do you think? Is that a legitimate fear from from parents? Yes, and, you know, going back to my time as a parent um, sort of 15, 20 years ago, so it is a while ago and it pre the reforms in a different system, but it was statementing uh, and the regime around that when my son was um, in school. My belief about my child's rights were predicated on a belief that he had the right to be educated in a mainstream school in his local area. And at that time as a DCS, the majority of my conversation with parents about rights was about their right to be well supported in their local mainstream school. That has completely changed. I never have that. I never had in my last years as a DCS that conversation with parents. The conversation was always about, I want my child to have specialist provision. They have a diagnosis. It was a medical model. It was parents being told, here's a medical diagnosis. This is what your child's problems are and therefore they have the right to this package of resources which is expressed as an individual package of resources which um, often leads them to believe the right thing is a specialist placement and 
alongside that, the other bits of the system are also pushing them that way because mainstream schools aren't incentivized or necessarily funded to support youngsters with SEN in the way they'd like to. The performance regime around inspection encourages them uh, not to be inclusive. That's been addressed slightly with the latest Ofsted framework. So all the parts in the system are encouraging parents to think the answer is a separate package of resources and increasingly um, an independent and non-maintained special school. And the tribunal system is geared to supporting that choice if that's the choice parents make. So, So I kind of think that you know, coming back to what we were saying, that of course we're all in a rationing situation because resources aren't finite. If you're a parent, it's not your job to be interested in what the local authority's resources are. You want what you believe is best for your child. What has changed is that the great majority of parents now believe what is best for their child is a very expensive, independent specialist placement. And until we change that and until we change the idea that children can and should be educated in their local school well supported and that it's the the parents right and also the duty and the right of schools to be well supported to be able to do that then we won't change the race for money because it's it's built in and baked into the system do you have any thoughts about how as is a dcs or as a parent about how change that perception it seems like it definitely it's going to be harder to do against this backdrop of pressure to perceived pressure to cut costs yeah i think so i think we do need a reset i think if you think about um a local community or a neighborhood and you are explicit about the fact that we expect the local schools plural in that neighborhood in in, in a reasonable distance of where a child lives with the exception of very low incidence high need special needs like for example severe hearing impairment, sometimes vision impairment. There are highly, um, uh, uh, not rare, but sort of low incidence special needs that it's very difficult to meet in a mainstream setting. There always be, will be. But I think if we set the expectation that between a community of schools, we can meet all children's needs in our community with only very rare exceptions and then structure the funding to enable that to happen. So in other words, the funding that's currently going out of the system into independent and non-maintained specialist placements being there for schools in the local community, um, then we might see some change. And I think we began to see that in the old regime with money for statements being delegated to groups of schools. That's now banned in the national formula. You can't do that in the national funding formula. And until we change the basic architecture of the funding, we're always going to get a chase for individual packages of resources. And schools are always going to be able to say fully in, with full justification, we're not resourced to do this. It's better that they go to a specialist provision. So are there, are there, is there anything in the, the recent Green Paper as proposed that people think is positive or could make a difference? Oh, Alex? <laughs> the right smile probably gives away my opinion that not a lot, if I'm honest, and I think it's because of those fundamental architectural points. Um, uh, I'd be intrigued to see what the response to the consultation this time is like. So we're obviously speaking, I mean, it's always easy to say on the eve, could be any day, week or month now that um, the government kind of sort of finally publishes the response to the consultation that's just finished. It was not like the 2014 um, changes 
didn't have a fairly large voice of dissent against them. Or, and, and I think that was oftentimes meant to be very constructive from local authorities. Very little of that was heeded. It wasn't, there was a, the Green Paper was a march towards legislation and change that time. I'd be fascinated to see if it's different this time, because I do think those voices are going to be louder. And I think particularly rightly, the parents, the parental sort of almost advocacy is much stronger, it's better organised. And I think uh, for individual parents, like that gives them some security and help within the system, even if the actual outcomes that they get from that are not necessarily like better than what they would have got before. I wonder if that level of organisation will give more heed that the volume is turned up on what comes out in the consultation enough that there is actually a proper think and reset and whether there is an opportunity in new governments being formed that we might just get the serendipity of timing that some of that stuff gets taken seriously, I wonder. Um, a lot of ifs in that sentence. But yeah, I think in its current format, there's not a lot to love um, from our perspective in it. I think just echoing what we said before, I don't think it does much to address the sort of lack of humanity in the current system and the lack of, um, you know, you've got several partners and players like Mark and Lucy both pointed out in terms of individual school teachers you speak to, parents are involved. I'm seeing a really nice increasing trend in some of the local authorities of deliberately and purposefully hiring parents into teams as a way of trying to change some of the language and culture um, around that. It's at a very micro level. That's a very small trend, but it's, demonstrable how big an effect that has on the attitude in teams. And I think sometimes we almost forget that the teams themselves, I'm sure Mark will have seen this in times DCS, they've been hollowed out. Like the turnover of social care work and, you know, the kind of the relative low pay and, and conditions of it, the teams I'm going into are relatively always very inexperienced. They're kind of a mixture of kind of the people who've been there a very long time and who have seen it out and who are, you know, on the edge and are exhausted or kind of getting close to retiring out or very new and very junior teams with quite a high turnover. And it's meaning like, you know, the local authority can't be expected to make good informed judgment calls about people's cases in every time because they're, they're trying to do it with their kind of hands tied behind their back. And I think any move that increasingly gives people collective incentives um, and allows them to kind of come together about those outcomes, not adjacent, not kind of health attending a board and sitting alongside you, but in the same teams with mutual authority, I think it would be a positive step forward. And I don't see a lot of that in there, if I'm honest. I don't think it's addressed much of the multi-agency working challenge. Lucy, anything? I think there are some small things in there which are which will be helpful. So I think that there is a greater recognition of the role of local authorities in um, in talking to schools and the relationship between local authorities and schools. Um, and that's being addressed in, in a small way in this paper and, and also in a small way in the other school's paper that's come forward. But it is in a small way and and, and the challenge is, is far greater than, than those small elements might make a difference to. And, and I think that the the huge challenge we have and which is completely sort of not being part of the conversation is is why is it that so many parents are now feeling that the mainstream system is failing their children and that they do not want their children to be in the mainstream system and and to, at the same time many schools also don't want to be supporting the SEND children from their area there are the the, the incentives within the school system um are all towards 
sort of denying that there's a problem for years and years and years. And then once they've recognised that there's a problem, having the shortest possible gap between recognising that there's a problem and getting the child into independent and separate education. And that's such so much all the wrong um, drivers, actually, what parents ought to be getting is really, really early support from their schools to try and identify what the issues are and what can be done to help a child. And I know that individual teachers and individual schools try and do that, but but the system doesn't help it. And until we tackle that, these, well, there may be some sort of small useful things within this white paper and within the school's white paper, as long as the system remains within the funding formula, discouraging early identification and discouraging early support, um, we will find that parents get increasingly frustrated with the mainstream offer of within education. And, and, and as long as that is the case, then you, there will be this uh, financially catastrophic drive towards um, special schools and, uh, and, and their enormous costs. And the tragedy of that is that actually children tend to do less well in terms of their, their next steps after school if they haven't been in mainstream education. Um, so, so for the long term for the child, a happy mainstream education uh, is the best outcome. Um, but, but so many parents don't seem to feel that they have that option of a happy and successful mainstream education for their children. And, and that aspect is not addressed in this paper. Yeah, Matt, I think you wanted to come in there. Could, yeah. could, uh, could I just check when you're talking about incentives for school, though, is it part of you know, their, their fact that they're judged on their exam results? Is that one of the sort of disincentives from um, them accepting um, children with special educational needs and disabilities? Do you want to pick that up, Matt? Or it's partly the exams and it's partly the funding. So it's the, it's the performance regime and it's also the funding. So... Um, there's a notional allowance in the national funding formula of up to a certain figure that schools are supposed to fund themselves for kids. It's around six thousand pounds. About six thousand pounds now, I think this latest iteration. So schools are immediately incentivised to make the case that a child has needs that go beyond that that five or six thousand pounds because they're getting that money anyway. It's baked into their budget, so. If they identify additional needs, they are incentivized to bid for top up funding from the high needs block. Any, you know, when we even had instances of, um, uh, Senko jobs being advertised as having an income target. <laughs> you know, I mean, schools advertising saying the Senko has an income target and, and it's bidding into the high needs block because you're not seen as successful unless you're getting lots of EHCPs with lots of high needs block funding attached attached to it so so i mean that's on one level but i think you know the, the there are some things in the green paper that will make the current system work a bit better but if the current system is fundamentally flawed it won't solve the underlying problems so to to make a slightly more efficient version of a flawed system it, it is not policy success in my view and i think we've got away from the idea that Children are on a continuum of need, and that may change over time. We've got a system that encourages a baked-in version of a child's needs, that usually secondary transfer. If we're being honest here, by far the bulk of the problem is in the secondary sector, not the primary sector. Primary schools, statistically, in every other sense, are far more inclusive. 
the number of kids um, having our needs identified in the form of an EHCP jumps hugely in the transition between year six and seven. That's when people suddenly decide this is it, that primary now needs, you know. So a lot of what we're saying about incentives applies to both the curriculum, the inspection framework, and the performance uh, and accountability model that we have in the education system for secondary schools, which actively disincentivize them, with the exception of the latest model of the inspection that does make some progress to recognizing SEN. What it does is it incentivizes, the inspection model incentivizes secondary schools to do well by children with SEN in their school. It does nothing about the fact that they're incentivized not to admit children with special needs. That's the key problem. Everything incentivizes schools, secondary schools, not to admit children with additional needs. And I'll be interested to see if the proposals around the uh, new DfE regional structure, who are being given a, 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 a sort of bumped up role in this, given what's happened over the way they've managed exclusions and admissions into academies over the last 10 years, I'm somewhat doubtful that this is the answer to all of our prayers in relation to sorting out the SEN uh, issues we have uh, uh, and the sector. But I, I come back to the fact that um, the Green Paper says nothing about curriculum, very little about teaching. And it's within that environment, the curriculum and teaching, that children either thrive and their parents have confidence or they don't. And unless we have a curriculum model that's focused to meeting a continuum of needs, and pedagogy and teaching skills that back that up, it's going to be very different, very difficult to have schools that are either equipped or incentivized to be mainstream schools to be more inclusive. So that's why we need that fundamental look. And we need to, as I say, get back to a bit more of a social model of disability, because in the end, and this is a very obvious and simplistic example, you are only disabled by the fact that you're in a wheelchair if the building you're entering doesn't have lifts or ramps to get you about. And the same is, is true of children and their special needs. They're only disabled by those needs if their local school isn't enabled to meet them. And if you can do simple things to enable the local school to meet them, then the child is not disabled by that. Their needs are being met. And I think that's where we need to be. And that fundamental focus just isn't there in the green paper. It's about tinkering with a broken system that I think might make it more more efficient. So just coming on to digital EHCPs, if you make the process of getting an EHCP faster and simpler, that doesn't address the issue of why do so many parents want an EHCP. It used to be that the majority of requests for EHCP come from schools. They now come from parents. The vast majority of those requests for an EHCP come from parents. Why don't we address the fact that so many parents feel they have to have an EHCP? rather than make it more efficient, efficient at giving them one. That's just going to keep blowing the budget. And a really good discussion around a lot of the issues. And, and Matt, you've talked there about some of the things that, that need to change. I just wonder, um, Lucy, Alex, if you have any kind of things that would be top of your wish list to change to improve the system. Um, Lucy. Um, I think changing the way in which schools are funded um, for, for SEND children would would make a massive difference. I think that would be top of my wish list. Um, it sounds such a 
kind of <laughs> it sounds terribly unimportant or it's just kind of um but but it makes so much difference to the way the system works and um and we need to make it that schools feel it's in their interests to have and support children with SEND well in their school and at the moment it absolutely isn't um and and so so that would be my top choice of something to change so some vigorous nodding from Matt on that one as, as well uh, Alex yeah I mean Matt and Lucy have covered off some of the, the big ones that I totally agree with I think on um maybe reflecting the fact that I'm oftentimes at a more operational level and some of the kind of wider policy and strategy stuff I think one of the things I mentioned at the top of the call about um sort of critical of the hand that feeds in some way with DFE but um I do think there's an increased role it's such a complex area like Matt said and it has such breadth that these are relatively small teams of professionals and, and small communities who are dealing with it. I do think there's a really big role for, I'd say, going beyond standards and actually holding opinions uh, as a DFE but about what good looks like, but also just really making a really proactive effort to increase access to that. So if I pick a really practical example, things like we're seeing really struggling some of our authorities about good knowledge and mapping about what is actually available in their area in terms of what they'd call provision mapping or whatever it is. And teams that are now consistently having high turnover, the model seems very much designed for an old world where staff stayed in jobs for a long period of time. There's a lot of continuity and relationships between schools and SENCOs, funding and things are stabilized. We're not there, like we're a million miles from there with the, the back thing of the pandemic. And I think there's a really big role for DFE to either do it themselves or to advocate centrally to increase access so that schools can get solid teaching on the principles of SEND so that local authorities can get access to good skills about provision mapping so we can not have the position where they're trying to figure out how to kind of work directly with suppliers to integrate finance systems. All of those things are kind of just fundamental cogs that turn the machine. Um, but the DFE is in a unique position to look across nationally um, and simplify the choices that the teams are having to make. Because if they're wrestling with these bits of the change, that's all their attention and everything that's distracted away from the, the job most people got in there to do, which is to kind of help people get the best outcomes and, and you know, live a good life through their school years and beyond. Um, so yeah, at a practical operational level, I think there's things you can start doing now, even as you do that wider system reform. Um, Matt, is that a picture you recognise as yeah. in a lot of councils? It, it, it is, and I think, um, I mean, at a, at a sort of another level, one of the things we haven't talked about today is transition for young people with special needs into adulthood and for those who are going to receive services as adults, how that's done. And, you know, there's been a kind of baked in entitlement to the age of 25 for uh, school provision that young people are in without really any test about whether that's the right thing for them and the right provision for them for uh, uh, certain types of special need and disability. Um, I, I come back to the fact that I think we, we either have to say as a society that the current trend that we want to, to basically identify individual children's needs and provide a, a package of support that is totally about them as an individual rather than thinking about the wider system, if we're going to have that, then you've probably got to double or treble special needs funding to make any of the people in it feel happy with it. Um, or alternatively, if we're going to say the global amount we're spending on SEN is going to be X, and at the moment it's about, as I say, about 100% more than in 2015, if we say that is the resource pack, 
what is the best way of spending that that global resource um, in in a way that um, removes the barriers to people going to their local school and feeling confident that their children's needs will be best met in the local school and uh, and looking at it from that end rather than a kind of and I, I speak here as someone who fought for my child's rights but a, a rights-based individual approach that says a parent must fight for the you know this that and the other that has to be in the HCP has to be a set of resources attached to their individual child if instead that was focused on their right to have a decent local offer in their local school and and what the barriers that prevent that happening um you know that to me would be a better solution because we need honesty here if you want the current system of very individualized highly specialized highly separate provision then you have to hugely increase the funding to pay for that. But if you're not going to do that, then you have to have a more community-based uh, and social model of disability that says, actually, we're going to make it all of our responsibilities locally to meet all of uh, children's needs, apart from a very small number of specialist needs that will need highly specialised provision. Thank you. Well, I think I think our time is just about up. Um... There's so so many more issues we could explore. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to come in as a, a last word or uh, their predictions for what might happen next. <laughs> I think predictions in politics at the moment are a mugs game. <laughs> well, what, one thing we one thing we didn't say, and this is you know having acknowledged this is a very difficult and very complex. It's a wicked issue, I see, and it's a complex um, area of area of policy but um, having launched the reforms in 2014 the government committed to reviewing them I think in 2017 or 18 and produced nothing and then Covid hit and delayed it another two years and then what we've got is the green paper that is almost five years worth of government policy reviewing time and with what out I mean you know that that I do hold them accountable for why did you take so long and why did so little come from it? Um, you know, this should have, and, and if we're honest, the main thing that's pushed it up the agenda of people's attention is is the the financial position. You know, seventy percent of local authorities now in deficit on their high needs block, and that's what's it's it um, because of the changing in accounting regulations, it's threatening to bankrupt local authorities, and that's that's what's brought it to people's attention, rather than the fact that. The system wasn't working well for parents or kids or schools. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, I don't know if there's a way we can we can kind of put that, because I do think the department is culpable for absolutely dragging its feet over, over trying to address a problem that was obvious to everybody for a long time. I really do. Thank you to all my panel for a really um, interesting and useful discussion and yeah, this is obviously an issue that LGC will be following closely um, when we when we get the new administration, and uh, and hopefully they will continue to make it a priority. And um, so, thank you all. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Local Authority thank Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. Local Government Chronicle, or LGC is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com.
TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions, which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact, transformation that matters.